But we see in this section a, an illustration of what we're going to be talking about tonight, the righteousness of God. Romans 2, beginning in verse 1, says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now that's the way men act. That's, that's men. Unrighteous. Verse 2, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the, escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that his, the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And here that's explained. Verse 6, Who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. This is the righteousness of God. He will do right. To the wicked, they will receive punishment. To the righteous, they will receive reward. They will receive blessings. Any of us that hear that, we would say, that sounds right. It sounds like how it should be. The criminal should be punished. Those who are righteous should go free. That's, that's right. And this is what God will do. So let's pray and then we'll jump into this chapter together. Father, we thank you for, again, the reading of your word. And we ask that you would bless it and that you would remind us again this evening of who you are. As we confess always, we know it is true that the most important thing, the most important knowledge that we can have in this life is the knowledge of you, our God. And we need a right knowledge. We know that the only true knowledge that we can have will come from the revelation that you've given. And yet even that, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand and make application of it. So we're asking, Lord, would you please... Let us see again a glimpse of your glory and majesty and hear your righteousness that we might exalt and praise once again your holy and righteous name. For your name's sake and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so from the outset what I want to try to do is make a connection between the holiness of God which we've discussed in the last two sections to the righteousness of God, which is going to occupy the next 
two weeks. I'm going to try. As we go through the chapter in the book, what I'm about to say sort of fleshes itself out. I'm trying to put it all together here at the beginning. If it doesn't work out, if we get to the end of it and you say, that didn't make sense at all. Well, later on it'll be more clear, I think. But I want to try to do it from the outset just as a way of, of transition. So remember that we said that when we say God is holy, we're saying first and foremost, we're making a statement about the nature of God Himself as transcendent, as completely separate and distinct from everything else. That's God's holiness. He's separate, apart from, distinct from anything and everything else. He alone is God, therefore He alone is holy. But secondly, remember there's a category of the holiness of God that refers to how He relates to the present state of the created order in corruption and in sin. Because God is transcendent with regard to His nature, He also transcends or is outside of and beyond the corruption of uh, the creation. Or we could say He transcends the creature's corruption. And I pointed out that very often when we use the word holy, we mean that second implication of the holiness of God. Um, and very often when I am referring to that, I'll actually make a distinction by referring to the moral holiness of God. Not His holiness absolutely in Himself, but the moral holiness of God or His holiness as it relates to morals. And I said that that idea of moral holiness is virtually synonymous with righteousness. In other words, I, I assume, and I think it's appropriate to assume, that there's a clear connection between God's holiness and God's righteousness. Now, I've, I read this this week, and I just thought it would be helpful to show you that I'm not way off base in, in that connection. Gerhardus Voss actually defines the righteousness of God in this way. This, the sentence is kind of backwards, so I'll try to read it where it's easy to understand. This is his definition of righteousness. The natural disposition of his being, God's being, not only to maintain himself against every violation of his holiness, but also to show in every respect that He is holy. That's how He defines righteousness. In other words, God's righteousness is simply God maintaining His holiness and showing His holiness in what He does. He says that righteousness is, quote, the attribute of God's being that compels Him to make His holiness a power outside of Himself. So he would, he would agree with us when we say that holiness, when we, when we think of it in its purest form, deals primarily with the internal nature of God. He is holy in Himself, distinct from all creation, distinct from all creaturely corruption coming out of Himself and relating to the creature. But he would say righteousness is just that holiness of God coming outward from God in all that God does so that His holiness can be seen. Since God's holiness is His essential distinctness or distinction from the creature, 
we see it, we see His holiness in one way, in that He governs over all creation because He's holy. He's outside of creation. He governs it because He's not a part of it. He's holy. He governs. He's the governor. So we see His holiness there. And we see it in the fact that He does that governing or He governs according to a standard that is also above and beyond all of the attainments of the creature. It's a holy standard. The holiness of God is seen in that He governs and that He governs in a certain way, completely distinct from us. So we might say that God's righteousness is the holy God governing the universe in a holy way according to a holy standard. It always carries with it this idea of God's government of the created order. To say that God is righteous then takes into account His role as governor and judge of all creation, doing exactly what needs to be done perfectly in every circumstance in compliance with His own good pleasure. And as far as I can can tell, anything and everything that you're going to find, men have tried to articulate the righteousness of God, and we'll see even in the Scriptures when the righteousness of God is addressed, it almost always uh, brings along with it this notion of God's ruling over or governing creation. It always carries with it the idea of God rendering right judgments in all things. And as we're going to see here in a minute, the words, the very words for righteousness and justice or judgment, justification, they, they, are all, they all go together. Sometimes they're even translatable in, in a synonymous way. They, they, can, they can be intertwined or interchanged with one another. Herman Bovink says, His righteousness consists in the fact that He grants every man according to His work. And He treats the righteous and the wicked distinctly. That's what we saw in Romans 2. God does not hold the guilty innocent. He doesn't hold the innocent guilty. God does not regard persons. God does not take bribes. God does not judge impartially because He's righteous. His holiness comes out in the way that He governs and judges. In Revelation 16 we read, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. See the righteousness and judgment of God. In Exodus chapter 9, even wicked Pharaoh says, I have sinned this time, The Lord is the righteous one, and my people are the wicked ones. Because God had poured out a judgment, a a plague upon them. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 12.1, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I may plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? In other words, God, it doesn't make sense. I know you're righteous. So I've got some questions about justice. It seems like justice is not being served and that doesn't seem to line up with a righteous God. It goes together, you see. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prayed, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. 
The flip side of that in the scriptures is that all unrighteousness is denied God. Psalm 92.15b, He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. And Romans 9.14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Injustice, unrighteousness are basically synonymous. The, the ideas always come together. So we have the, the holiness of God issuing forth in the righteousness of God and righteousness always comes with or brings with it this idea of the justice or judgment of God. And the, the very words that are used in Scripture will show this connection. Now, look at the introduction in the chapter and you'll see he begins with these words. The meaning of righteous. The word righteous is translated from the Hebrew word tzaddik and the corresponding Greek word dikaios. Both terms denote the rightness, correctness, or moral excellence of God. According to the Scriptures, God is an absolutely righteous being and always acts in a way that is perfectly consistent with who He is. There is nothing wrong or incorrect about God's nature or His works. He will never be or do anything that would justify any accusation of wrongdoing, his works, decrees, and judgments are absolutely perfect. On the day when God judges all men according to their works, even the condemned will bow their heads and declare that God is right. And prior to glorification, if we, if, if the veil was pulled back and we were given a glimpse of the true righteousness of God, it would terrify us. And we know that because very often when we are in the presence of other human beings and we know in the back of our minds that they might have a little bit of a higher moral standard than we do on certain things, we get a little uncomfortable. We get a little nervous. What, 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 do, they, what do they think about me? I just feel like they're always judging me. Well, they're probably not thinking about you at all, but you feel it because you're in the presence of someone that you, you understand They've got a standard. Well, that is nothing compared to God. If, we, if any of us were in the presence of the, a, a glimmer of the righteousness of God in this present state, we would be horrified. It would terrify us. He's righteous. He goes on to say it is important to understand that God's righteousness is intrinsic or inherent to him that is inward, essential, belonging to his nature. Righteousness is not merely something that God decides to be or do. It is essential to his very nature. He is righteous. God would have to cease to be God in order to be unrighteous. We, he would have to deny his own nature to do something that is not right. This is a wonderful truth that inspires great confidence in God. And all of, all of that, of course, will be unpacked as we move through this chapter. So, the, the number one, he begins again with the names and, or attribution of God in Psalm chapter 7, verse 9. So, turn with me there to Psalm 7. Psalm 7, I'll read verses 8 
and 9. And you'll see why. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Verse 9. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. So what is he called here? What is the name given him? The righteous God. We're reminded here that righteousness is so essential to God that the title can be given without any clarification. It doesn't say a righteous God or one of those righteous gods. It simply says the righteous God and and the, the student of Scripture knows exactly who we're talking about. And it's amazing in your Bible reading, just, just start thinking about that. That every time it mentions God or the Lord, there is never a defense or an attempt to prove who it is that we're talking about. The, the whole of Scripture assumes that God from the very beginning. The note here says, At the risk of being redundant, the important truth communicated here is that God is righteous. Therefore, all His decrees, words, and deeds are perfectly righteous and worthy of absolute trust. And that's exactly what the the passage showed us when we read verses 8 and 9. Yes, He is the righteous God, but looking back at verse 8, we see several things that we would expect the righteous God to be doing. The The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, or vindicate the righteous. We expect a righteous God to vindicate His righteous ones. The wicked, we expect they're going to meet their end at the beginning of verse 9. And we expect that the righteous will be established. There will be judgment upon the wicked and an establishing or a blessing of the righteous based on what? The fact that God is righteous, that He will do right. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. God is looking and He is making The division, he's determining, he's weighing and proving, trying, testing hearts to show their their true state. God's righteousness is that perfection in God whereby he renders to every man what is right according to his own perfectly righteous evaluation of them. He's the standard. And he didn't reference it here, but we could even go back to very often he uses Exodus where God proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord. And then what does it say? He will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clear the guilty. He will render this to this group and this to this group. That's who he is. That's his name is righteous and righteousness. Second heading. In the following verses are some of the most important declarations in Scripture with regard to the righteousness of God and His works. Summarize each text in your own words. Remember, there is a direct relationship between God's righteous nature and the righteousness of His acts and judgments. God does right and judges righteously because God is righteous. It's never the other way around. We never say, well, since he did the right thing, I guess we'll call him righteous. Because what would that imply? That would imply there's a standard set outside of him that he must attain to. And because he met the standard, he obtained a righteous uh, name or title or description. That, That cannot be. 
God is perfect. He doesn't obtain or attain to anything. He is Himself the standard. He's righteous and therefore He acts righteously. He is righteous and therefore whatever He does is righteous. So the first text is Deuteronomy 32. Turn there. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. So again, you see the connection between these words. Without injustice, righteous, upright, His ways are just. We see here, all of God's works and ways are just. All of His dispensations and all creation to all men, all of them are absolutely righteous. That's what the text is saying. Turn to Job 36. Job 36, verses 22 to 24. Behold, God is exalted in power, who is a teacher like Him. Who has appointed Him His way? And who has said, you have done wrong? Remember that you should exalt His work, of which men have Sung. No one can charge God with any wrongdoing. The, the question is rhetorical. It can't be done. No situation, no circumstance, no, no providential happening in history. Can anyone come along after the fact and say, you know what, God, you got this one wrong. I think you should have done it differently. He's, it's, it's all righteous. And the question is asked rhetorically, who has appointed him his way? The answer is no one. Nobody comes to God and says, hey, this is the way you need to do it. No one sets a standard or rule over God. Why? Because He is the standard. He is righteous. What He does meets his, the standard of who He is. Turn to Psalm 36, 6. Psalm 36, verse 6. Notice again the relationship of words. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. The note says the metaphors are clear. God's righteousness is greater than the highest mountain and more profound than the deepest sea. So like a mountain, we see God's righteousness is fixed. It's immovable, it's established, it's, it's elevated above all. All of, of our attempts at righteousness, we, we must keep our eyes lifted up to Him who is the perfect standard. His righteousness is unchanging, unwavering, it can never shift. No landmark of God's righteousness can ever be moved. God's righteousness provi- pervades all creation. You preserve man and beast. And it's like the great deep 
the deepest sea, often hidden and mysterious to men. The fact that we assert with Scripture the righteousness of God doesn't mean that we come along after the fact and say, we've analyzed the situation and we agree. It's righteous. Right? That would be absurd. There are many, many things that God does that we, we come along after the fact and we say, your word says you're righteous. It's mysterious to us. And, and, and we're never invited to come and, and, and analyze it and say, here, make sure this is right so that we can, we can move along with the assertion of God's righteousness. No, we, we can't do that. We're, we're, not, uh, we're not qualified for that. It's like the great deep. Psalm 89, 14. There's two texts that say the same thing. Psalm 89, 14 and Psalm 97, 2. 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. And then Psalm 97, 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. So this morning we began by considering the sovereignty of God. He's enthroned in the heavens. That that tells us about His position as sovereign. He rules over all things. Well, here we see that the foundation of God's sovereign rule is righteousness. He rules from a place, from a seat of perfect righteousness. Apart from righteousness, God would not be an adequate governor of the universe. If he were not righteous, he would be a tyrant. If God were not righteous, then Abraham could not have said in Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Shall you not do what is right because you are the judge? You're the righteous one. This is the foundation of your sovereign rule. It's assumed in Scripture that the one in whose hand lies the judgment of all things, he must be righteous. He must be perfect in righteousness and justice. Psalm 119, 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And your law is truth. The note says, here we see two great truths. First, God's righteousness is immutable. It's everlasting and unchanging. We see that in that phrase. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. He will always be righteous and absolutely trustworthy. Second, the truthfulness of God's Word is founded upon the righteousness of His character. Your law is truth. We know the Word is truth because we know its author is righteous. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. God's righteousness is not cultural. 
God doesn't come to various cultures and nations and different generations and times and say, how does your culture do, thing, do, do things? Okay, well, we'll make that the standard here. Then I'll go over here and we'll come up with a different standard of righteousness. He doesn't do that. God's righteousness does not sit atop the shifting sands of human societies, but lays at the foundation of all creation, ensuring that though men be as wicked as they are, I'm tempted to say as they can, apart from God's restraint in our, on our end of it, we're as wicked as we can be. We're, we're going after it. God's, we're, not, we're not as wicked as we could possibly be apart from God's restraint. In, though men be as wicked as they can, God will make sure right is done and the world continues unto its appointed end. It's everlasting. It doesn't shift. It doesn't change. Societies, men will do what they will, but undergirding all of that, God is righteous. He's ensuring that things keep going as He has declared it. Jeremiah 9, 24. Jeremiah 9, listen to 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, keep this in mind as we move forward in 1 Corinthians. This is important. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We want to know God. And th- th- that is the, the great boast. If we, if we attain to that in our life, that's the boast. I've, I've made a step. I've made an advancement in my knowledge of God. That's all that matters. But a true knowledge of God consists in part in a knowledge of His righteous character and understanding that He delights in righteousness. That's what it says. God says, don't boast about anything except what you know of me. That's all that matters. God is right and He delights in what is right and good because He's righteous. Third heading. Number three, it is important to understand that the justice of God, like His holiness, is transcendent. Now notice here, He doesn't say righteousness. He just went straight to justice. Why? Because there's such a relation. And then He, I'll I'll spare you the attempt at the Latin form of transcendent, but we've covered that before. God's righteousness infinitely surpasses all others. There is no other who is righteous like the Lord. And then we have several scriptures that teach us about this. The first is Isaiah 5, 6. Turn there. Five sixteen, sorry. Five sixteen. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Again, you see the connection judgment, a holy God. Holy in righteousness. These attributes of God, they, they are knit together. 
The note says, The Scripture demonstrates that the Holy God will show Himself to be separate or distinct from all others through His righteousness. God's holiness, that is separateness, distinctiveness from creation, is most clearly demonstrated through His righteous deeds. There is none holy or righteous like the Lord. And we're also reminded in this verse, the Holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. He's exalted in judgment. We are reminded here that as God continues to set before, his, before men His righteousness or His righteous nature throughout time, that will eventually climax in a final judgment where His righteousness is plainly declared for all to see. And as He said at the beginning, He will finally be exalted by all men as righteous. They will see it. We will see it. The Holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. Turn to Isaiah 45, verse 21. Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. There are things in Scripture that are put side by side very often that uh, in our minds and in reality they, are, they seem to be great contrasts that are, that are drawn together and clearly understood only in light of the gospel. When we read a righteous God and a Savior, that's one of those, those passages. This is one of those places. You, there, there, that's a sermon. If, you're, if you, somebody's wanting to write a sermon, right there it is. A righteous God and a Savior. Anyway, we see here that God alone is righteous. What does that mean? Well, we might attain to some righteousness. The believers, the people of God, do attain to, do obtain and grow in the performance of righteousness. And it's not wrong to say, you know, what we see David often praying about according to my righteousness. But none of us will ever have a righteousness that is essential or, or self-sufficient like God's righteousness. God is righteous in and of Himself. Essentially, it's who He is. Any righteousness in us is either uh, any, any righteousness that it might, as it might apply to the sinner is either an imputed righteousness, God treating us righteous on account of Christ, or a worked righteousness that's only produced because His grace is working in us. God, He needs no imputation and He needs no inworking of grace from outside of Him. He simply is righteous and He's the only one that we can say that of. And it's interesting also in this passage that God's righteousness is being put on display along with or in the fact that He has long since declared certain things and they came to pass. So we also see God's righteousness 
in the execution of His eternal decree without fail. He's righteous. He says what He's going to do, and He does it. In other words, there are no chinks in the armor of God's righteousness. No one can say, well, yeah, over here he's, he's been righteous, but here He said He was going to do this one thing, and He never did it. we got a problem over here. No, there's nothing like that in God. He's perfectly and fully righteous. Number four, it is important to understand that the righteousness of God, like His holiness, is reflected in His attitude toward the deeds of men and angels. God is not morally neutral or apathetic. He loves righteousness. We saw that in Jeremiah. And He hates all unrighteousness. And then we have several scriptures. The first is Psalm 7, 11 and 12. Psalm 7, 11 and 12. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. God's righteousness requires, and I say requires in the sense that because this is His nature, it it must be so. God's righteousness requires that He burn against all unrighteousness and that He render punitive justice to all evil. And when you're reading about the righteousness of God, usually they'll divide it into His, His punitive justice and His remunerative justice. This is talking about punitive punishments. And one commentator says, God's anger continues against the wicked as long as their wickedness continues. Why is that? Because God is perfectly righteous forever. So His his indignation must burn forever against those who are wicked forever. People don't all of a sudden get right in hell. They don't go to hell and all of a sudden everything changes. No, they, they become even more wicked throughout eternity, and therefore His righteous indignation burns against them for all of eternity. Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. Well, that only makes sense, right? The wicked will perish. The upright will behold His face. That's righteous. So we see here, this is the flip side of it. For the godly, there's a great hope. We will behold His face. We get to see Him. We get to be with Him. Because He's righteous. He requires righteousness. He provides righteousness. And He produces righteousness in His people. And then He rewards that righteousness. We're not not detracting anything from God by saying that He will reward those who are righteous or the godly with the, the, the beatific vision, the beholding of His face. No, He's the one who provided it for us and done it for us. It's all of grace and yet we receive the blessing. The note here says, Both of these above texts demonstrate every man's need of Christ and His work on Calvary. God is perfectly righteous and will judge all that fall short of His standard. 
Christ alone lived the perfect life that we could not live and then bore our sin and suffered the wrath of God that is described in Psalm 7, 11 and 12. Psalm 11, 7 declares that only the upright will behold God's face. Such righteousness is only possible through faith in the person and work of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the apostle writes, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The righteousness of God is a terror to, to the ungodly. The righteousness of God is beautiful to the godly. Not because we have done anything in and of ourselves, but because of what He's done. It's righteous of Him to reward the godly. Number five. The righteousness of God guarantees that God will do no wrong. He will rule over His creation without caprice, partiality, or injustice. This is a great comfort for the believer who has made God his hope. And then we have several texts of Scripture. The first is 2 Chronicles 19.7. Turn there. Second Chronicles 19.7 Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. If we fear God, then we will avoid that which He hates. Why is that? Because God's righteous. And because the fear of God consists in a conscious awareness of the God who is the righteous God. We will fear Him. We will avoid that which He hates. Job 8.3. Job 8.3, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? The answer is no, He doesn't. Job 36 Verse 23. We read this one earlier. Who has appointed him his way? And who has said, you have done wrong? Again, no one can impugn the character of God. No one can say that he's done anything unrighteous. And so whenever we begin to imagine that things ought to be done differently, that the affairs of history or providence could be possibly amended, to be better, even in our own personal circumstance. God, I think maybe you could have done this a different way. Whenever we begin to think that way, we are falling into that trap of impugning His character. When we begin to think that the standards that God has set forth in His Word for our lives are too strict, we are impugning His righteousness. We're saying, God, your, your ways are not really righteous. When we begin to think that God's standards set forth in His Word are not quite strict enough. So we need to add a little something to it to make it really strict. We're saying, God, you're not righteous. I'll show you righteous. You just sit back and let me show you what righteousness is. We are re when we do that, we are rejecting this truth. God is righteous. Psalm 9, verses 7 and eight, I'll just read this one. But the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment and He will judge the world in righteousness. 
He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. We're reminded here that while unrighteousness continues in the present time, it will not be so forever. God will soon put an end to all unrighteousness. Why? Because He's righteous. He has to. He cannot let unrighteousness endure without His judgment. It must come out of Him and into His creation. And we know that language, He will judge the world in righteousness, that's picked up in the book of Acts. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Christ Jesus. So let me, I'll conclude this way as I have several times before because I want to try to make these things, and, and I should say, I want who God is to be pertinent all the time. As we look at history, or we look at the present, or we think about the future, as we bring our lives in conformity to God's commandments and bring our hearts into submission or full submission of faith in the gospel. And we meet with struggles, we meet with difficulties, we meet with sins. We're trying to comply, we're trying to make sense of things. And our, our nature, there, there are bumps, speed bumps, or, or, or quarrels within us with what is happening outside of us. We have to remember that God is righteous. We can look back historically. We were talking this afternoon about things that have happened in history. We could say, man, that's wicked. Well, God's been righteous. Men are wicked. God's done righteously. We can look at what's happening right now all around the world and we can, we can see the effects of the evil of men. We have to understand that underlying all of that is the righteous decree of God. God has decreed that it would be. God's righteous. He's done nothing wrong. And God will do what is right. What's going to happen in the coming months, in the coming years? What do we know for a fact will happen? God will be righteous. God will do what is right. We know that. And we never have to fear because God is righteous. That, that is our, our great hope. That's all we have to offer anybody, anyone, is, is God. Here's, here's what I have to offer. A righteous God. A rock higher than me. If you don't want that, I've got nothing for you. That's comforting to me. Let's stand and sing hymn number 421 to close.